Entitlement Report has been out for more than two years. Can you believe it? Hi everyone, it's Sean here from the Taiwan Report, and I wanted to let you know that your donations have really helped. In the coming days, we will be releasing some new episodes, some of the things we couldn't fix, such as some sound drop-offs and things like that. However, at least we were able to salvage those interviews and make sure that you could really enjoy them. We understand that the pandemic has been tough, so if you cannot donate, one of the ways you can help is by donating some of your time. There is a call for volunteers. If you have any skills in editing, writing, or other things, we want your help here at Taiwan Report. Join us at report.tw and do a great thing, or spread the word about us. One of our main goals is to let people hear more about Taiwan and understand Taiwan. That's all, and we really hope you enjoy this coming episode. Welcome to Taiwan Context. I'm Donovan Smith, your host, and with me today in studio is Boston Paul Davis. Now, Boston Paul is legendary in Taiwan for many of his accomplishments, including as a famous photographer, musician. He's been in many bands, traveled around the island. He photographs a lot of festivals, and he has held and organized a lot of festivals as well. He's got an extremely colorful past. And he also happens to be one of the best friends I've ever had. So, welcome to the studio, Paul. I love you, man. I love you too. <laughs> All right. You've been in Taiwan for quite a long time, but you have quite a, an interesting backstory here on how what happened before you got here and the transformation that you underwent when you came here. And I think that's really quite an interesting. Story, but can you give us a little bit of the backstory about what what was the path that you followed before you got here? Well, uh, my mother and father um, got together, kissed, and made love, and I popped out nine months later. Mm. That's the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and, and both of them immediately looked at each other and went, "He's going to Taiwan." Yep, yep, yep. yep. <laughs> Yeah, they gave me a Chinese name and everything. No. Yes. Seriously, though, I my my parents were quite conservative. I totally wasn't. I grew up a, a militant hippie, so to speak, a tough guy with the long hair and the and Jimi Hendrix. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I was like kind of a poor kid that grew up in a rich town. I have some experience with that. Yeah. 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 You and I discussed that many times, and didn't quite fit in. So when I was about sixteen, I left home, went out on my own. When I was seventeen, I hitchhiked to what I thought was going to be Haight Ashbury Street in California, San Francisco, <laughs> but I ended up in Arizona because my uh, I had made a phone a collect phone call home. Mm -hmm. Is before cell phones and whatnot. My mom's dad, my grandfather, was in the hospital and he, they lived in Arizona. So I ended up hanging out in Arizona for a while, and I won't get into details, but I had a life changing experience in Arizona with one of the Native American tribes out there and mm -hmm. partook in a cactus shake <laughs> a cactus smoothie we'll just we'll just leave it like that so when i came back um you know i thought i was just going to kind of live this kind of biker hippie life kind of thing i ended up joining the military some people have described me to my face no less a little bit on the extreme side if i'm going to do something i usually just go all out <laughs> so instead of just joining the military i wanted to do something cool mm -hmm. so i joined the red berets i jumped out of airplanes for three or four years I was in, 82nd Airborne, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Then when I get out, 
that's a whole other interview if you wanted to talk about my military <laughs> past. Then I get into law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Because I was a vet, I was accepted in UMass Boston, where I majored in philosophy and English. I was in law enforcement, which was kind of weird. Right? Studying philosophy and English. And studying philosophy and English and hanging yes. out with these hippies, but also hanging out with these eight up short haired carrying guns and <laughs> it's just kind of a weird dichotomy you know? so I, I, of course you know that immediately brings an image to mind of reading someone their miranda rights with a shakespearean accent and then asking them about whether or not they truly comprehend on a fundamental level what this really means to their existence you have the, you have the right you have the right to not say anything um but because of all that, and then the reason, you know, it, it is a bit of a colorful past, but that's really the road that led me to Taiwan. If one of those components was missing in the story, I would not be here right now. Because of my political views, I wasn't really getting promoted. I don't want to get into details, but I, I don't agree with all the laws in America. Those laws have since changed since I've come to Taiwan. So, mm -hmm. But we won't get into details. But yeah, anyone out there listening kind of knows what I'm talking about. If, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So I ended up having to learn Chinese so I could work in Chinatown, which would be like my little loophole to promotion and, and more money. I was dating a Taiwanese girl in Boston at the time. One of my Chinese teachers, like I, I took Chinese philosophy from her, I took Chinese literature and Chinese Mandarin. I took Mandarin from her as well. And she told me about a program here in Taichung at Donghai University. And UMass Boston and Donghai University were sister schools. And, and I was a vet. The government was paying a little bit. If I learned, it'd be 100% free if I learned in Massachusetts. But if I came to Taiwan, they'd pay half the tuition. I just had to get an airplane ticket, you know. So, yeah, I came out here in the summer of 93. Mm -hmm. for Interesting the first time. time. Yep. And when I went back after a full summer, June to August, first week of September, I started back at work. And they're like, do you speak Chinese? And like, um, <laughs> so I came back in 94 for another summer semester at Donghai and met some friends and just fell in love with the country. When I graduated university at the end of 94, I, I added an extra semester on so I could finish my philosophy degree. I moved here in January of 95. So that's the backstory of me getting here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Once you arrived here, it's fair to say you underwent quite an interesting transformation going from being a vet, a cop. When I met you in the late 90s, that was definitely not your image. Nobody would perceive you as a cop other than the fact that you're very muscly and well-built. People wouldn't immediately associate you with being a cop or a an ex-vet. So what happened in the late 90s that totally threw you off the straight and narrow path? <laughs> well, I always said that, you know, a lot of people, they take Xanax and do other drugs to kind of fight their demons or whatever, go to psychiatrists to work out the crap in their head. And for me, it was Taiwan therapy. I mm -hmm. called it Taiwan therapy. I, I just took myself out of the box that I was in the States, all that pressure of having to be number one and having to be a, a tough guy all the time and getting out of my car and punching someone in the nose, which actually I did that when I first got here in Taiwan as well. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that went down really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there were no cameras on the streets back then, luckily. I could never do that now, but they deserved it. They were very, very bad. You know, that's a red light, not a guideline. Mm -hmm. But besides that, I was just able to relax and pursue things that I loved to do. Like I was a musician in the States as well, but 
I didn't get to really pursue that at all. And, and I was doing photography while I was in the States as well. And I mean, I always had a camera on me. Uh, I was always taking pictures, film back then, of course, which I have been posting some of those online here and there, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, you can see some photos from 30 years ago. But here in Taiwan, I was just able to develop that. And, and, and there are certain types of people that come to Taiwan. And a lot of them, for whatever reason, left their home country. The Taiwanese are very friendly and supportive, really. I mean, there's an undercurrent of racism. Sometimes it's reverse racism, racism but it, you know, you deal with that. But as a white guy, basically, in Taiwan, I haven't had a total discrimination or I've experienced a little bit here, and I'm sure you have as well. But <laughs> You um, have in the press, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely have in the press, yeah. But uh, yeah, living in Taiwan, I was able to meet some unbelievable people, foreigners from all over the world mm -hmm. that became fellow musicians, fellow artists, fellow photographers, confidants, you know, just people, you know, you being one of them. My buddy Dong Yang, one of my first friends in Taiwan, actually, mm -hmm. I met him at the gym. James Tinker is another one. Just fellow artists, fellow musicians, and I was able to flourish that way. The other things that happened later, they were organic, doing festivals and things like that. I happened to move into a pretty big house with a big yard and a dead-end street right after the big earthquake yeah. in 99 with no neighbors, and that's kind of how the refuge gets started. Mm -hmm. And from there, Lovestock gets started, and all these things were kind of grassroots, organic, kind of grew whether I wanted to or not, <laughs> I just kind of <laughs> went with the flow. I was like the, the groovy surfer <laughs> surfing on the wave of, well, how you doing? All right. Well, let me set the stage a little bit before this. You went through a period where you had your own bushy bond, so you did business here for a little while. You had some other uh, positions as well. I got to know you originally as a photographer. But to set the stage for the refuge, now there's several iterations of the refuge here. You mentioned it was the end of a street. Let me set the stage a little bit here for the listener here to understand. Now, this is up, if you know Taichung, it's up in the Dakan area. When you moved up there, it wasn't that popular of an area to live in. And the street that you lived on, most of the houses had actually been abandoned. Yeah. So there was no noise issues. Nope. And it was surrounded by, it was up in the kind of these hills, beautiful, lush jungle all around and abandoned houses surrounding you. You had this big house with a decent sized yard. Mm -hmm. You set up the living room and basically removed the glass doors, set up a roof there and turned the living room into a stage. Yeah, a big stage. Yep. A little bit later on, built a bar out in the yard. So it was a really nice place to hang out. Yep. Go up there and people would be jamming. Sometimes bands would formally be playing. Usually it was just people hanging out and jamming and an open mic, loose, whatever. Yep happening almost every day back then yeah. yeah pretty much yeah i mean it was you know it was it was a scene really more than i think anything else if that would be an accurate way to describe okay, it so. i'm kind of trying to summarize it here for the listener here but it built a large community of people musicians artists just all-around fun people would come up here up into the hills up into the mountains beautiful air birds singing butterflies yeah. green grass to green lane. grass walk around barefoot yeah walk around barefoot there'd be fires in a fire pit you could lay in the grass it was a really wonderful atmosphere aside from the physical location what do you think really built this sense of community? Because the refuge community became a thing. It became a scene 
that was very much centered around you and Sandra and this location. And what do you think were the magic elements that made this scene happen? Well, I mean, like anything, really, you know, you first- other than you being absolutely gorgeous and loquacious. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's subjective, but yeah, <laughs> we'd get together and we'd have our hand drums and our acoustic guitars and we'd be able to jam until the sun came up, which happened quite often on the weekends. There was a couple other foreigners that moved into the neighborhood as well. Jess and Dan, we'd mm-hmm. basic aid with those guys and they had since moved to India, but they lived across the street. We'd all get together and have some drinks, hang out and make music. The more people that came, the more I realized I needed more equipment. Yes. My first soundboard was a mini disc player. A lot of Americans don't even know what a mini disc is, but it's basically a little CD and a little thing that you could record. It's like the size of a cigarette pack. Mm-hmm. And I've got hundreds of those <laughs> with tons of music for <laughs> years and years of music. Mm-hmm. I've bought my first soundboard and the spin. That's how I learned sound engineering. All of a sudden, I was doing sound for friends that would come over with their band. And then instead of going out on my birthday in July, I would just have my birthday at the house and we'd get 50, 60 people there. And then after a couple of years, bands would be like, hey, can I play at your birthday party? And so I had to beef up the equipment a little bit so I could plug it all the band people in, all the musicians. Then that was Paul's birthday. There was a magazine. I'm, I'm trying to, it was, a, I'm not sure if it was the Taijung Voice or 24-7, but one of those magazines. They did an article about my birthday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think yeah. they called it Paul Stock. <laughs> um, that sounds about right. That, yeah. yeah. So my birthday became Paul Stock. And everybody realized it's like, this is a thing now. This is, I thought a bit pretentious calling this new kind of grassroots thing, you know, name it after me. I just, I didn't want to do that. A bunch of us hum hard, come up with some different names, and we just end up calling it uh, Love Stock. Let me backtrack real quick. The way the refuge got its name was people would just come up on the weekends from the city. Mm-hmm. They would drive down past Beitun Lu, up Dongshan, like, where the hell are we going? And my place wasn't really easy to find. Yes, without I remember. I think one time we actually ran into each other because I happened to be up that way. Yeah. And I was coming back and I actually tried to see if I could remember the way to get there and then bumped into you on the road. You had to want to be there. Yeah. If you wanted to be there, you'd find it eventually. There were big crowds that show up. Oh, there would be. It was well, definitely one of these things. You had to be in the know, but once you were in the know, you were you, going to show. You were going to, yeah. Yeah. We should make that into a, into a, into a rap rhyme. <laughs> so <laughs> people come in. That's one of the reasons why we had to move Lovestock out of the refuge. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ended up finding. Uh, that, well, no. Uh, did you move Lovestock out first or did you move the refuge out first? Lovestock got moved out first. Okay. Yeah. And about when was this? Oof, that would have been 2000. Uh, let's see. I think the first official Lovestock would have been 2006, 2007, 2006, maybe. I think I even have t-shirts. I made like 50 t-shirts. I think mm-hmm. you might have one, right? A purple one. <laughs> I might. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a lot of love um, star shirts. A lot of love star shirts, yeah. In like maybe two thousand and seven or two thousand eight, I think we moved it to Love Stock to Dongshan Paradise, mm-hmm. and we ended up having seven hundred people there. We had to move it out of our house because we had three hundred people. It was flowing out into the street. Mm-hmm. I think we had, might have even had a small stage out in the street and in the yard, right? Mm-hmm. So it got really big. 
we like, yeah, we can't. Because by then, there were more and more neighbors were moving in, and you know, they were like, okay. yeah, it was. It was starting. People to get, start. It was starting to become cool was, to live yeah, up in the hills. It yeah, started to become, become cool, and and people were like, uh, Taiwanese were buying houses in, in the yeah. neighborhood, and and so we didn't have that freedom to make noise all night anymore. So, yeah, yeah, we had we had to move the love stock out. So you moved to Dongshan Paradise. Now, it, to set the stage here, just sort of quickly for the the audience here. Dongshan Paradise was an amusement park that was big in the 80s and into the 90s and then closed. Yep. Financial reasons. It was an abandoned, overgrown amusement park. Lots of character. With all kinds of rides, a giant gorilla, dinosaurs, amusement rides that have been overgrown. In terms of a place to have a music festival... It's really hard to imagine a more cool atmospheric location than in an abandoned amusement park. Quite a few of them. It was really quite the location. So, all right. So, go on. We had the the festival there the first year. I think the next year, we actually moved the refuge from our house to the park. Because we had to Dongshan Paradise. To Dongshan Paradise. So, I know I have to backtrack again. People would come in from the city and be laying in the grass and be like, oh, this is such a refuge mm-hmm. from the city. And you'd have the fire going. And we had the fire going mm-hmm. and we had a refrigerator full of drinks for people and it was often potluck. People would bring their food over and we'd all share. It was a little bit of a hippie commune. It was kind of cool. Not everybody was a hippie, but laid back people. Laid back people, just people who wanted to get out of town, get out of town, and enjoy do a little something. nature, some good music. So it was, it was yeah. pretty cool because when we opened the park in the when we opened the refuge at the park, I wasn't able to hang out with as many people on such a personal level. But when it was still at our house, I was really able to get to know people. You know, a lot of people were like, "Hey, I'm a bit of an artist. I did some paintings, and could I show them here?" John Renzella, one of his first art shows in, in Taiwan was at, at the refuge at our house. I think he you're put right. Up a yeah. whole bunch of, he put up a whole bunch of things. A lot John of the, Renzella, by the way, is one of the founders of Lay Gallery. Lay Gallery, yeah. Which is so kind of an institution. It's, it's, it's in kind downtown, of nice uh, yeah. seeing this doe-eyed mm-hmm. kind of newbie in Taiwan. And it's such a cool guy. We're from the oh, same yeah. neck of the woods as well, and both from the Northeast and super nice guy. Super yeah. nice guy. And it was nice to Very kind of see artist, him, yeah. see him kind of grow into what is now he's started doing tattoos and he's just just a nice guy he's he's, he's had some art shows and i oh, think yeah. his uh, his art spread uh, oh, yeah. to some and he's very, he's, he's brought in other artists yeah you know, to, oh yeah you know, so it's, it's a gallery now oh, yeah. i mean you know it's, him and pernita yeah. done a lot to really oh, yeah. promote arts in taichung john is is one example and then musicians that would come and like hey, do you mind if I play a little guitar with you guys? I'm like, yeah, of course. They're like, well, I'm not very good. I haven't played in a long time. I'm like, Get your butt up on the stage. We'll plug you in. Mm-hmm. And then you see him in a band six months later. It's just a great feeling to be there to kind of give everyone their little boost or a little kick in the pants or whatever, you know, it just... I got the vibe that it was doors were open. Doors were open, yeah. In yeah. other words, these are people who showed up because they were yearning for something. For something. Kind of a, an outlet. 
but also encouragement to a refuge. Um, a, a lot of people were no a refuge and they didn't have a chance in the city to do these things. I know uh, Wade and Jimmy, we, you know, back in the nineties, they would find these little places. Like, I remember there was this one kind of underground army, the goo ball. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I didn't know that then I found out a couple of years later what they, those what were they were interesting doing. parties. Yeah. And those were interesting parties. And we talked um, about that in the interview with Wade Davis which we will link to in the, uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. so yeah, it was this thing, but also I like to encourage people to go for it because that's the kind of person I am. I get an idea and go for it. And if I fail, I fail and I'd rather fail than not do it at all, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and often you succeed, but you also encourage a lot of other people too. I think that was the point of the refuge was, mm -hmm. was me being able to be in people's lives like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to, uh, I, I need, like to intervene in their lives. I like to, better uh, people. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> to help someone be a better person helps me to be a better person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but anyway, but yeah, you're a um, vampire of goodness. <laughs> <laughs> That's how the refuge started anyway. I, I didn't technically really name it. It was just so many people came and hung out. People just knock on the door and lay in the grass with the guitar and just be there all day kind of playing the guitar while I did whatever I was doing around the house or whatever. It was kind of a chill, nice time. And, and it just grew and grew. And you, you have to start with a core and a yeah. base and a foundation. We were at the right place and at the right time. And I think that's kind of what happened. And after that, it became beyond me. How do I do this? <laughs> and then when it became a business, when we moved to the park, now I had to pay bills. Like we didn't go there for free. We weren't squatting course, there. Yeah. We had to pay rent. I was trying to do it so musicians were being treated fairly, but I still needed to pay the rent. And I didn't want to handle the business aspect of it, but I had to. I got pushed into it. I learned a lot. I mm -hmm. think now if I were able to go back in time, I would do things a lot differently. But it was a learning experience, how to do business in Taiwan, how to deal with red tape and government and cops and mm -hmm. <laughs> all kinds noise of noise complaints, noise complaints and, and all yeah. kinds of stuff. Well, at the refuge, we didn't have, we did, the Lovestock had noise complaints because we yeah. had the three stages outside, but the refuge itself, we were inside and pretty soundproof. It was pretty cool. But then they sold the land. Well, let's and, go back well, a little bit, actually. Okay. I'd like to talk a little bit about two things. The first being is some of the love stocks themselves. And at this location at Dongshan Luyuan, the Dongshan Paradise was the English name. Early on, and when I got involved, the stages were much closer to the entrance. Mm -hmm. But it was the second year that I was involved as assistant volunteer. You moved the main stage. Now, this is quite in a dramatic it's image here. Pretty, pretty insane. The stage has kind of moved around different years. Yeah. For example, one year you, there was that hot tub stage. The hot tub stage. Yeah. The the first year that was the main stage. Yeah. Of course, the hot tubs were empty. Well, the long ones on the side abandoned. The, the ones on the side weren't. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The ones yes. on the side. There, there was still, the one in the back. Yes. Yeah, there were there were two. Which two, later two. in later years was of course for the volunteers, which was very appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> we really <laughs> needed the rest. Okay. There would be stages, for example, right next to the go karts. Would uh, sorry, the, the public, bumper cars. The public cars. That the was bumper, bumper cars. car stage. Yeah. There was a DJ stage at this weird concrete faux boat. <laughs> the character of all these stages was quite remarkable. But the main stage, and this created a lot of problems, everything from flooding to... When it worked, it worked. Though, yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it worked. 
when you moved the, the main stage into this giant swimming pool. Yeah, it was a giant swimming pool where there was a lot of stands. Or presumably, stands. at one point, they had performances in the pool. Yeah, they had, I think maybe they, dolphins, dolphins or, and stuff. And they had, and they had a stage there too with speakers. And yeah. it was a it was a proper like Metallica could play on that stage. It was yeah. a big ass stage. Oh yeah. yeah. So you had these stands, which presumably at one time was watching water ballet or mm -hmm. dolphins yeah. or whatever the shows were. So now these stands were filled with people watching the bands. But then the dance floor itself was the bottom of the pool. The bottom of the pool, yeah. Right above that, of course, you had the stage. Yeah, yeah. It was quite a big open area. Yeah. People are dancing in, in, in an empty, empty pool. pool. Yeah. <laughs> the sound was fantastic. Sounding, yeah, the sound was, that was You Joey. had all these yep. stands, you know, filled with people. Yeah. And so the whole thing was just a surreal experience. Yeah. But there was kind of a key point here, I think, in the history of all of this, where there was a longer lasting impact. And that was after the all of fire here in Taichung. And what happened was Taichung had by far the best music scene in Taiwan up yep. until about 2011. Yeah, we were the center. And what happened was a lot of people, for example, in Taipei, because it was such a dense, closely packed city, it was so expensive, so people are having to work constantly to pay for their little tiny apartments. Mm. Musicians tended to move south to Taichung. Yep. You get bigger apartments, you could find places to rehearse. Mm -hmm. There was a lively scene yep. in town with lots of venues to perform at. A lot of them, Grooveyard and 89K Grooveyard, and K. Boom yep. and just so many of these fantastic venues. Yep. And then there was a, a fire where Alla, Alla the all at the all saxophone pub and some people died and it was a horrible it was, tragedy it was a tragedy uh, but what ended up happening is there was a major outcry from the public both political parties and so basically all of these places had to be shut down everybody shut down yep the city government shut down everything the, everything. the live music scene was killed yeah. so the only things that were left were festivals and the refuge, the refuge because the refuge was not downtown. Nope. And so the refuge became basically the only live music, music venue, venue yep. that could play late in the evening. There was a few like sound could play until like six or seven in the evening and then had to shut down. We played until six or seven in the morning sometimes. Yes. <laughs> so it was the only place yeah. where the old music scene still had an outlet outside of festivals. Yeah. yeah we had uh, like, we get a warning. I mean, we, you make friends over the years, you know, yeah. and someone had come in and they knew me. Actually, they knew me because of sound complaints at the refuge when it was at our house. Yeah. One of the cops comes in and it's like, hey, how you doing? Like, good. He's like, uh, don't you live up on, you know, Dongshan Lu behind the university? Mm -hmm. I'm like, yep. And like, um, so what's going on here? I'm like, well, I didn't want you to come to my house anymore for noise complaints. So here we are. <laughs> and he started laughing. You know, it's all in Chinese too. So I was able to, and he's like, well, that's, that's great. You, you care about your neighbors and that's good. And I was like, oh, I've been looking for this place and now we found it. So he come back about two hours later, this cop, he's like, hey, look, you know, you're aware of the fire. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am. He goes, there's going to be some police coming in, some, you know, supervisors, some higher ups are going to be coming in the next day or two to look at your place. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. <laughs> like, oh no. <laughs> but it actually worked out pretty sweet. So he was right. Like a day or two later, they came in with their polished boots and like stormtroopers, like, pff, pff, 
they come in and the cool thing is it's already legal because it's a park, right? So we had a mm-hmm. front door and a back door. Yeah. Right. So they come in, they look around, they're like, so what are you trying to do here? I was like, we just want to play music and have a place for people to come. You know, everything's closed downtown and we just need a place. It's on private property. And I made sure I said that mm-hmm. it's on private property. There's no worries about noise complaints. And we just need a no place. neighbors, basically. No neighbors, very few neighbors. Very few. Well, in the front. There was the, a few. But it's but, not like downtown but, where you have thousands well, of people in just, the neighborhood. Yeah. And all you needed was just one, one person, person to complain. That just, you had dozens of people in the neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, we were good. So they came in, comes over, goes, all right. We should have Yeah. You know, come here, Mr. Wei. My last name in Chinese is Wei, right? Wei Junxiang, Wei. So he's like, look it, this is what you need. And we're going to come back in two days to see if he did it. You need fire extinguishers. You need mm-hmm. a bunch of them. You need yep. there, 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 there. You also need very prevalent, obvious exit signs. Okay. Both of these are reasonable. Which I, the next day, boom. Mm-hmm. And my exit signs were pretty awesome. I ended up taking that plastic cardboard. Mm-hmm. I took about the size of your average friend's widescreen, flat screen TV. Mm-hmm. Huge, like that picture right in back of you there. Mm-hmm. 70 inches by. <laughs> <laughs> and I drew exit in Chinese and in English, huge, and then put glitter on it. <laughs> and and it shined a light on it and then made a little stick figure running out in, in panic and put them on both. Yep. Both, uh, Andrew, remember those? Yep, I remember. Put them on both that thing. So they came in a couple days later and, and this guy was like stone face. You know, mm-hmm. if he smiled, his face would have like just cracked, you know. Mm-hmm. And he comes in and he's like, all right, you got the fire extinguishers? I was like, yep, we got those big exit signs you wanted right over there. And he looks up and he, he just he just burst out laughing. He's like, I was like, does it work? He's like, it, you're good, you're good. And that was the last time we saw cops at the refuge. And we were there for yeah. three solid years. Mm-hmm. And then they sold the land. Yeah, that's a shame. I kept everything that was in the refuge. Remember how much stuff I had, right? Mm-hmm. Everything that was at the refuge, I just kind of put in my garage on you know, the third floor and we looked for a place for about a year or so, and it was just it was just tough. So we did start doing small events at the original refuge again. Mm-hmm. Then the landlords from our the original refuge, the landlord's uh, mom gave the house to her. Oh, I just want to say so many bad things about this guy, but I'm not <laughs> I was going just to. about to, and yeah, yeah no, we, um, we, we shouldn't. But, let's but just this say, guy, um, uh, this guy, unpleasant. He was. Young man. If anybody wants to hear the story in person, I'll let you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> find find me on Facebook, Boston Paul, or Instagram. Yeah, so we ended up having to move out of there in a rush. And we moved to this house right down the street, which I tried to get a couple things going there, but the house was just basically a toilet with a metal door that came down. <laughs> I hate, I, I'm sorry to say, but that's an accurate description. I just, it was the, not the, the a best nice thing place. about that house was the, the rooftop garden, yes, which you populated with plants from when you moved. Yep. And then we moved out of there, and now I live in a pretty swank neighborhood, mm-hmm. which I really can't do huge parties at. But also COVID hit. So, you know, I've been doing a lot of underground things and friends and friends of friend things, trying to keep safe. And once we get everything under control, I want to get back in the swing of things. I'd like to do another love stock and Mm -hmm. 
I'm really looking forward to Compass and some other things that are going on and kind of all of us getting back into it again. You know, I kind of miss performing on a stage and I miss being behind the soundboard. Mm -hmm. I miss promoting. I miss people just waiting for those days to come. You're known as for running a live music venue. You're known for music festivals. You've been known as a sound guy for a lot of events you've done. But recently, something that I think has really come to the fore is your photography. Yeah. And this is something that has really taken off, I think, in your life. And the material that you've been coming up with has been fantastic. I've been Thank seeing a lot of the great stuff that you've been putting up. I know that word of mouth has been spreading like wildfire. You've been quite busy with it recently. Yeah, I think it's, so, it saved me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I made pretty good money teaching as well. Mm -hmm. I teach a lot of privates and things like that. And, yeah. Um, now I'm making about half that, which still pays the bills. Mm -hmm. But as far as like putting money away, you know, that's wasn't going to happen. But I've been shooting weddings. I know a couple of uh, managers that bring their models in and, and we do shoots and, you know, aspiring models that need a portfolio portfolio and shooting musicians and bands. That, that's how I actually cut my mm -hmm. teeth here in Taiwan. Sheriffs, things like um, that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel bad. I know some foreigners that had to leave Taiwan because of COVID and they just couldn't make ends meet. I was able to still make ends meet and it was the photography that actually helped me through that, which is pretty cool. It's kind of nice to, to do something you love and have it pay the bills as well. I'm always pushing myself musically and artistically and photography is something that was a hobby right up until about seven years ago. And now I have a real live studio with mm -hmm. lots of equipment and lots of different cameras and lots of lights and all the expensive cameras expensive cameras <laughs> giant uh, lenses yeah, just yeah I've, I've, yeah it's it's nice i'm able to pack the, all that up and you know I, I went out and bought a nice van so i'm able to pick up my clients in the van and we're able to go to locations and i take out my you know i have three different cameras and nine or ten lenses and lights and we're able to travel around taiwan and do our location shoots and mm -hmm. and it's been paying the bills and i've been able even to save a little bit but yeah i went from shooting bands at the refuge for promotional reasons and because i i wanted to give the band something because a lot of times you know they would just come play and uh, we paid them what we could gave them whatever drinks we could but then i could give them photos of their show and that's kind of how it started mm -hmm. so my hobby turned into a necessity for promotion and whatnot and then the necessity turned into an actual company that i run now and even hire other photographers to help me with my work sometimes mm -hmm. All right. So why don't we leave it there? Yeah. And thank you very much for joining me in the studio. Thank you very much. I love you, man. And I love you, too. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we're going to have a great evening hanging out after this. But very quickly before we go, if somebody wants to find out about your photography, where do they go and how, how do they get in touch with you and where can they see your work? Well, I'm on the Internet. I'm on Instagram at Boston Paul. Boston, B-O-S-T-O-N, Paul, everybody knows that, P-A-U-L, P-I-X, Pix, Boston Paul Pix on Instagram and on Facebook. You can also pick up a copy of The Compass. I think I have adverts yes. in there as well, which I need to to redo pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> Could be updated, yes. Yeah, I need to update it a little bit. Yeah. You know, Facebook and Instagram, Boston Paul Pix, you can find me there. We're going to look at my work. Tell me what you think. Leave a comment. Give me some love. I'll love you back. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> All right. All right. So let's leave it there. Well, thank you for joining us on Taiwan Context. I'm your host, Donovan Smith, here with Boston Paul Davies here in studio. And uh, be sure to tune in next time and check out some of the recent shows. Be sure, of course, to hit like, subscribe. If you're on YouTube, hit that little bell because that gives you notifications. And, of course, be sure to sell all your valuables and spend them all joining us as a patron on patreon.com slash Taiwan Report. Thank you very much. This has been brought to you by the Taiwan Report. For more content like this, become our patron at report.tw. This is Sean here again, and this month we wanted to thank our supporters. They include people like Will, Emily, Zeb, Franick, Najee, Nathan, Formosan Business Support, Thomas, John, Frank, Jenna, Simon, Edward, Sebastian, Ryan, Lauren, Patrick, David, Carlos, and Paul. Thank you for your support. Taiwan Report is a small volunteer-led outfit. We are on a shoestring budget. We are independent. This allows us the maximum freedom and allows us to keep our goals in making ethical, responsible media. We've created hundreds of episodes for listeners like you. We hope you had as much fun as we have listening and enjoying all the shows that we've made so far. 